Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. On this episode, we have Johnny Oshevsky, who is running to be the next county executive in Baltimore County, Maryland. Even though we have a $3.5 billion budget, um, we had one budget hearing that no one attended. And so as county executive, I want to take the budget to the people we serve so they can meaningfully understand how we're spending money and solicit their feedback about how to participate. Uh, and then also move our county council hearings to the evenings um, that they currently happen in the middle of the day when people can't participate. And then even things like campaign finance and taking you know big special interests out of the mix, creating a public finance option that puts the power back in the hands of, of our people. And I'm a big believer that the volume of your voice shouldn't be determined by the depths of your pockets. And then we have the news with me, Brittany, Clinton, Sam, as usual. Brittany is a part of the news, as always, but a little different today. We weren't all together for recording. Uh, and the word today is really a just reminder that sometimes you got to walk out. I had an experience uh, recently where I walked into a place and I knew that if I was a white man in a suit, that their reception to me and response would have just been different. And the way that it all went down was like this moment of like, I could still continue and like make this work and try and figure it out. Or I could just say like, this just isn't a place where I need to be. That like, it, this is not so much that I need to sacrifice values and beliefs to like make this work. So, uh, you know, there are times when we show up in rooms and in places and, and like, we know things are off and we are afraid to say them or name them or just like remind people that the way we treat each other, like has to be an equity and justice in all ways. Uh, so sometimes you need to walk out. You need to walk out, walk out. Let's go. As we all sat and watched the incredibly misogynistic, patriarchal mess that was coming out of Capitol Hill this week in the form of the Kavanaugh hearings and the brave, brave testimony by Dr. Christine Blasey Ford, I'm reminded that we have been afraid of what Kavanaugh could do, not just because of his history uh, in college and in high school and his treatment of women in his personal life, but also because of his treatment of women through the courts. I'm reminded that he has time and time again ruled against a woman's right to choose and a woman's uh, ability to have bodily autonomy, both in the cases of uh, disabled young people and in the case of an immigrant teenager. Those same kinds of behaviors are being seen by the Office of Refugee Resettlement. So essentially, the Office of Refugee Resettlement is forbidding an unaccompanied minor pregnant young woman from getting the abortion that she has decided that she wants for herself. Um, it's important to remind everyone that not only is abortion health care, one in four women in their lifetime will have an abortion. So we can't continue to talk about abortion as if it is something that is not happening all over the place and something that needs to happen safely and continue to happen safely. But this young woman has made a choice for herself. She's in the state of Texas and went through um, the required dealings in order to make sure that she had the kind of bypass that she needed because she is a minor around their parental rights laws. Uh, according to Imani Gandhi's work in Rewire News, however, the Office of Refugee Resettlement is blocking her from having access to this abortion. Um, not only do they do this in a number of cases and block that right for bodily autonomy, they are also blocking her and other young women like her from having full access 
access to information about their choices. So we are seeing that unaccompanied minor young women or young women, period, are immigrating to this country, are trying to make choices for themselves and don't even have access to the information, the full breadth of information that they need in order to make that choice. On top of all of that, though, the Office of Refugee Resettlement is essentially telling the courts that they are justified in blocking this because they consider themselves to be the de facto parent of the young woman who came over. So here's why that is particularly bothersome. I have been in Los Angeles this weekend and I went to the California African American Museum and it's an incredible place, but there's a really, really powerful exhibit there um, that was curated by some brilliant folks about slavery in California. Lots of people don't realize that both indigenous people and African-American people were enslaved uh, in the state of California, even though it entered the union as a free state, even though it was brand new territory and considered to be Western expansion. But the ways in which landowners and wealthy people in California often got around new laws once California statehood was established to keep their enslaved Africans was by promoting themselves as the parent of these enslaved people, as the de facto guardian of enslaved Africans that they brought from other places like Missouri and Texas, etc. So there is a long history of people with ill intent toward young people of color showing themselves to be some kind of caring guardian or parent of those same young people. And in doing that, effectively stripping them of their rights. Just because the manifestation of it in 1850 in California is different than what we're seeing in 2018 in Texas doesn't mean that the principle isn't still the same. I'm really, really saddened by this. And it's important for us to recognize that as we are all sitting and watching this hearing that gripped the entire country, there are so many things happening out of our line of sight um, that this administration wants to continue to do to strip the rights away from people of color, from immigrants, from women over and over and over again. We have to keep watch, we have to stay alert, and we have to keep talking about this. Thanks to Imani Gandhi for your really important reporting on this. Find the whole article at Rewire News. What's up, y'all? It's the news. I'm Clint Smith, at Clint Smith Third. Aye, aye, aye. And I'm Sam Sinyangwe, at Sam Sway on Twitter. Mr. Sinyangwe. Uh, and this is Duray, at Duray on Twitter, D-E-R-A-Y. As you know by now, Brittany is not with us on this recording of the news, but you've already heard her news. And what you've also probably heard, though I hope you haven't, is another uh, Kanye tweet storm on terrible things with terrible opinions uh, and terrible takes. Again, Kanye's out here <laughs> with the the ahistorical analysis of, of slavery. He's out here, uh, I don't know whether purposefully or on accident, calling for the abolition of the 13th Amendment, which abolishes slavery. Uh, my man is out here wearing Make America Great Again hats. He's out. He's just he's just doing a lot. And the thing about Kanye, it's I mean, we've talked about Kanye before on the pod. It's Kanye, those first three albums, especially for me, were, were just like huge and seminal and formative pieces of art in my own childhood. Uh, and, and it's, it just, it's, it, it really is sad. I think I'm beyond the point of feeling sad about it, but, but my man like doesn't make good enough music to be putting crazy stuff out here in the world like that. Um, so at this point I'm almost numb to it because Kanye is going to do Kanye. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really sad to see, 
you know, somebody who we looked up to, who appeared to be, you know, not only musically brilliant, but with some of his earlier works also seemed to have some social consciousness as well. And to see sort of how shallow all of that ended up being, right? Either, I don't know where it went, or maybe it just was, you know, sort of surface level at that. Uh, and when you dig deeper, you know, there's just isn't, isn't something there there uh, with regards to sort of historical knowledge, sociopolitical knowledge, all of the things that um, are really important for somebody with a platform that large to have. Uh, and, you know, it's just sad. So, you know, I hope that the people in his life are, you know, reaching out to educate him on issues and, Hopefully that does some good over the long term, but in the short term, you know, this is just, you know, episode after episode of, uh, you know, embarrassing things that he's saying. And I hope that stops. You know, he wrote on Instagram that like the 13th Amendment is really slavery in disguise. And you're like, I don't even know what that means. What are you even trying to say? Like the loophole in the 13th Amendment? (laughs) You're like, oh, this seems like a, a problem. So. I don't know. And and then for him to say that people are bullying him is, I think, the most sort of frustrating thing, because that is creating space for so many white supremacists who use the same language, like the people who wish harm on communities, don't believe in equity, don't believe in justice. In the, mo- in the moment, you're like, well, that's racist. They're like, oh, you're being a bully. You're like, no, 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 you're just being racist. And Kanye is is like very publicly providing a cover for those people and creating space for them. And that is uh, what's so dangerous about it. But there's been a lot going on this week in the news and we can't ignore the Kavanaugh hearings or the FBI investigation, if we can even call it an investigation. Yeah, I think like so many people, I sat in front of my TV last week and watched uh, Dr. Ford so courageously, so bravely, so profoundly express the very real harm that, that she had experienced all these decades ago, and and I I can't remember the last time I sat in front of a TV for that long since you know since I was like nine years old watching Power Rangers or something. But among many things, what I what I most took away was again Dr. Ford's bravery and to watch both online and in person as so many women and girls expressed a profound uh, not only solidarity but but I think her testimony has opened up. Uh, an even larger space than perhaps existed, you know, even in the midst of the Me Too movement around what it means to have public uh, discourse and to publicly discuss and to publicly reckon with, um, and not even necessarily publicly, to, for people to reckon with um, their own experience with sexual assault and sexual misconduct. And uh, and it was it was staggering to just kind of step back and and see so many women share her story and her experience and and not obviously not only women um, and just a lot of people but uh, it, I'm st- I think I'm still processing so much of that. Yeah, I mean it's it, it is sad to see how much courageousness, how much bravery, how much heroism, right? Um, extraordinary heroism it takes to even get this FBI investigation, this one-week limited FBI investigation, to even push them to investigate the sexual assault allegations has taken so much from so many people, putting literally their lives on the line. And yet, and still, we're in a system, it's also a reminder of how systemic you know, these inequities are where you have a situation where even when it's an investigation, the agency doing the investigation, the FBI is disproportionately white and male. 
the people who are defining the scope of the investigation are the Trump administration, which, as we've seen, is now exercising its power to limit the scope of that investigation. Um, so, you know, at every step, you know, it, it, it takes a massive effort and then the system will respond uh, in ways that don't even honor the commitment of those who, uh, who it's supposed to be responding to. And so, you know, it's sad. And, and at the same time, you know, it's a reminder that you know, when we look at this type of nominee, there are so many things that we've heard uh, in addition to the sexual assault allegations, which alone should be disqualifying. But it seems that over the course of these hearings now, we've seen Kavanaugh lie again and again and again and again. Um, most recently, one of the uh, lies was during this past hearing uh, where he he said that he got into Yale all on his own because of his hard work. Um, and so, you know, the quote that he gave in that hearing uh, last week was, I have no connections to Yale. I got there by busting my tail. So we've come to find out through reporting from Newsweek that, in fact, uh, Kavanaugh's grandfather went to Yale, uh, which means that Kavanaugh himself was a legacy student. And by definition, a legacy student is a student that through no work of their own, no effort of their own, just because they were a child or a grandchild of somebody who also went to Yale, they got an unearned advantage in getting in. So when you look at the data, Yale, you know, last year, so for the class of 2021, uh, 12% of students accepted into Yale uh, were legacy students, uh, compared to 11.7% of students who were black students. So the total black population uh, and, and about 13% of students who were uh, Latino. And so you have a situation where, you know, the, the size of the legacy student body is comparable to, and in many schools like Harvard, uh, far larger uh, than the total student body of black students or the total student body of uh, Latin, Latino students. And so, you know, that's, this is a entitlement, right? Legacy admissions. It's an entitlement that reflects nothing about you coming from hardship or having to overcome uh, barriers to opportunity as a consequence of your race. Uh, instead, this is literally an entitlement based on the fact that you came from a legacy of privilege, right? That your parent went to Yale, right? Or grandparent went to Yale. Um, and and yet we don't see that at all being part of the conversation around what types of admissions policies need to change. Uh, we don't see the Supreme Court, you know, taking up cases to challenge the, the efficacy of legacy admissions policies. Instead, uh, they have attacked, and if Kavanaugh gets confirmed, they may well dismantle affirmative action uh, to the extent that it benefits people of color. Yes, yeah, Sam, I think you bring up uh, a really important point. I mean, one, you know, even if we were operating in a context in which we were to say that he, uh, he did not commit sexual assault. Um, I, I believe Dr. Ford, I, I believe what she's saying. Um, but for this hypothetical, let's say that that she he didn't actually, um, was not actually the person who did this. Beyond the, the, the alleged sexual assault, this man, he got up there and, and demonstrably and clearly lied time after time after time after time. Uh, current affairs, dot com uh, did an extensive, extensive breakdown of like every instance of of lying that he he engaged in while he was under oath, um, and and many newspapers and, and magazines and outlets have 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 reported extensively on this. And so you know, beyond the 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 sort of unprecedented external uh, espousal of partisanship, right? Like calling the, his what happened to him a, a witch hunt, a uh, Clinton. Of of the Clinton Knights and 
and literally looking at all the Democrats on the Judiciary Committee and uh, and and haranguing them and just like inveighing against them again and again and again in, in like in remarkably personal terms. So I think the idea that this person could ever be on the the Supreme Court and like operate under the pretense of of neutrality and objectivity, uh, you know, even though it is largely a pretense, uh, I don't I don't know how we move forward from that. But to your latter point, I think. You know what you bring up about legacy is is really important. I didn't even know until you brought that up that his grandfather was uh, was a student at Yale. I mean, even if his grandfather wasn't a student at Yale, I think it's there's certainly something to be said about the fact that you went to Georgetown Prep and that you grew up in one of the wealthiest suburbs in in America, and that you are a white man, and that you you know have all of these systems and advantages, and that you would say that I got there through nothing but my own hard work. So that's already uh, you know a, a bunch of baloney, but. But the fact that his grandfather actually makes him a legacy student, like empirically, is is pretty, again, pretty stunning that he he just got up there and lied. Um, and and what's interesting, you know, I'm I'm uh, as you all know a student at Harvard in the in the PhD program, and and I appreciate the school in in many ways. But what's fascinating uh, is that Harvard's incoming class of 2021 is made up of 29 percent. Legacy students, according to the Harvard Crimson, uh, and last year, applicants who had Harvard in their blood were three times more likely to get into the school than those without. Uh, and what's interesting wow, is there three was times. A, three times. Uh, and, and across the top 30 schools in the United States, uh, in a piece that was discussed in the Washington Post, it found that children of alumni, quote, had a 45% greater chance of admission than other applicants. The New York Times found that five Ivy League schools, Dartmouth, Princeton, Yale, Penn, and Brown, at those schools, there were more students from families in the top 1% than there were from the entire bottom 60%. And so all this is to say that, like, there is profound uh, inequity on these campuses. And, and you know, many of these schools, and, and Harvard is including that, has done a lot of work uh, to increase uh, inclusion, increase diversity, increase opportunities for low-income students by not having them have to take out loans in order to go there. Um, and I think that those are good things, to be sure. But but it is, I mean, still almost a third of the student body at at Harvard and, and so many of these other schools is made up of, of students who are, are direct legacies. And that is... Uh, in my mind, that's that's kind of unconscionable, uh, but but it again shows that there's so many people who who believe that they inherently deserve the things that they have um, and aren't willing to acknowledge that uh, that they may have worked hard and they likely did work hard, but that hard work was was supplemented by uh, by a very real set of sort of like intergenerational opportunities that other people simply don't have access to. You know, uh, Clint, that makes me think about uh, one of the ways that whiteness works is uh, the, the myth of self-making and self-mastery. And Kavanaugh might be the best public example of that in recent times, that, that, that this notion that he himself did everything, didn't benefit from anything, did, uh, like that is self-making in its finest. And then when pressed on his qualifications and da da da, he's like, "I was on the, I, I, I was an athlete. I like to." And you're like, "Really? Is that yeah. really like what qualifies you to be on the Supreme Court? You were an athlete 30 years ago?" And that is like a, that's like how the self mastery begins. It's like this, it's this long road of like, I did these things, I mastered it, I didn't benefit. And what's interesting, especially uh, from the Republicans and just the way whiteness works in general, is uh, 
that they never that that self mastery and self making is never ever extended to anybody else, and it's always explicitly denied. So they are the first mm. people to tell, make sure that welfare people on welfare know that they got government assistance and that they they shouldn't be getting any assistance because if they were strong, capable people, they would be doing everything on their own. It's like, well, you didn't do everything on your own. Like, that's not, like, you're making this bar that nobody else did. I'll also say, um, there was somebody I went to college with, Emily. She had this Facebook post that I reposted because it was so brilliant. And I'll just read it. She said, folks who were talking about Serena's meltdown, this is a meltdown. In the middle of a hearing regarding sexual assault with a nomination for the Supreme Court of the United States hanging in the balance, Kavanaugh has yelled, cried, interrupted senators, and demanded they, quote, let him finish. Obviously, being a sexual predator should be disqualifying for a Supreme Court judge. But if we're honest, everything Kavanaugh has presented is disqualifying. His temperament is petulant and erratic, bordering or belligerent. His candor is lacking. His credibility is shot. If you've ever asked what white male privilege is, here's your tutorial. And like, I think that's it. When I saw him cut off Senator Leahy, I was like, oh, this is really something else. And like he's a judge, he would he would find a lawyer in contempt of court if they talked to him the way he talked to uh, those senators. That was just wild to watch. And Sam, I you know you had brought up this legacy stuff before, how there are more legacy students and students of color in most of these places, uh, and that still is like it's still one of those things that every time you say it, I'm like, wow, that is really special. Don't go anywhere. More politics the people's coming. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened, but soon a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. 
It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing, sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go, and Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com and enjoy your edible. <laughs> Legal disclaimer, paid for by Vote Save America, votesaveamerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. So some better news that's happened this week that, that didn't probably understandably get as much attention as uh, so much of what has been happening uh, regarding Kavanaugh and, and elsewhere uh, is that the Center for American Progress just had a report that they released um, on the impact of universal pre-K. So in 2009, D.C. began an ambitious project that offered two years of universal full-day preschool across the city's public schools, public charter schools, and even some private preschool programs that were administrated by community-based organizations. And as of 2017, approximately 9 out of 10 of D.C.'s 4-year-olds and 7 out of 10 of D.C.'s 3-year-olds were enrolled in publicly funded preschool through this expansion. So that was by itself like a remarkable Achievement, And so while this policy was introduced largely with the goal of improving school readiness, since all the studies and, and social science have shown us that, that preschool attendance has, has shown to improve children's academic and socio-emotional skills, uh, young parents soon found that those two years of free, high-quality care actually had a huge economic benefit for them in ways that were, were not necessarily uh, projected or, or weren't necessarily the goal of, of the original uh, the expansion. And so this new report by the Center for American Progress shows that public preschool uh, also allows some parents to reenter the labor force and increase the number of hours that they work, providing uh, just, you know, a, a really a boom for the economic well-being, obviously, of those families. And that has been the experience of uh, people in Washington, D.C., and specifically mothers who have returned or entered the workforce in significant numbers since the city expanded universal pre-K. And so in the years since D.C. implemented this program, the maternal labor force participation rate has increased by about 12 percent. And 10 percentage, uh, ten of those percentage points uh, can be attributed to preschool expansion. So as we think about what it means to close the wage gap between men and women, a gap that sociologists have have talked about as being largely tied to what they call a motherhood gap um, for people who have children and then are unable to work the same hours or often women find themselves in positions where they – uh, are stepping back from work more so than their male counterparts. But but this study is really amazing because it shows that there is like a, a really significant improvement uh, and increase in women's participation in the workforce and their sort of economic returns in ways that that are really kind of an additional benefit to a program that was, was hoping to increase school readiness for kids. Uh, but now we're also finding that it's decreasing uh, the pay gap between men and women by decreasing the motherhood gap. So So this is good news and I was excited to see it. So I was actually unaware that DC was implementing universal preschool. Uh, and in reading more about this, particularly from some of the research that the Center for American Progress has made available, uh, DC is not alone. So DC plus seven other states 
uh, have implemented programs that cover at least half of four-year-olds. Uh, so, you know, obviously universal preschool is more than, is far more than half, but uh, only seven states even cover half uh, of four-year-olds in publicly funded preschools. And uh, according to research estimates, for every state to implement a universal preschool model, it would actually save $83 billion a year wow. uh, in costs right over the long term. And so, you know, these are programs that, you know, for all the reasons you mentioned, Clint, benefit not only the kids, but benefit families, benefit mothers, benefit communities as a whole. Uh, and, you know, there's really not a, a good reason not to implement these programs, right? These are things, and I remember under the Obama administration, every State of the Union speech, he would talk about, we need universal pre-K, and he would talk about all of these benefits, uh, and Republicans never would appropriate the funds. Uh, but what's important here is that that conversation uh, has continued. That conversation has been such a, you know, universal preschool has been such a part of the broader conversation, particularly under the Obama administration, uh, that it appears to also have influenced states as well to take action uh, and to begin to implement these things on their own. And, and it's good to see that that's you know happening in places like D.C. Uh, and at least seven other states. And I'm hopeful that you know we can continue to push at the state level uh, while this administration federally obviously doesn't appear to be uh, interested in these types of things, but push at the state level to implement uh, more and better uh, preschool opportunities for kids because we know that this makes a difference uh, over the long term in everybody's life. Clint, this was uh, something that definitely missed my radar. I hadn't seen this at all. You already talked about the impact on uh, the maternal workforce, allowing mothers to participate. It's interesting when we when we talk about closing the wealth gap, there are some things that we know don't work, but there are some things that we know do work. And it is this access to childcare is a, is a big part of uh, one of the barriers for women to participate in the labor force in a way that is equitable and makes sense. So this provides one of those tangible things that that like state cities can do to actually address the wealth gap in a way that is also addressing other things like, you know, kids being able to read and write. I remember when I was in Baltimore City Public Schools, uh, our data showed at the time that young people that participated in like structured programs before kindergarten did better in kindergarten. So it was all, we always wanted kids to be, uh, to be in like a head start or in some sort of pre-K just because they'd be much more ready. So the thought that there's full day pre-K in a lot of places, and Sam already talked about how full day pre-K is not everywhere, but a lot of places have half day pre-K, which is better than nothing, but still a burden on a lot of families. Cause like somebody got to get the kid at the half day and like that actually still creates a burden. What I will say the most interesting part of this for me is that uh, DC funds the full day pre-K at the same with the same formula that it funds K to 12, which sounds really wonky, but is a huge deal because the preschool teachers are, are being paid just as much as any other teacher. Like they are treated as a mm. part of the workforce in the school system the same. And what that means is that in 2017, for instance, the district spent about $17,000 per child enrolled in public preschool, which is huge. A, a comparable, Georgia spends about $4,000 per child enrolled in its universal preschool program, right? Mm. So it's not only that there's a program that has access in D.C., but the program is actually designed to be as robust as the rest of the academic program, and that actually matters. That's a really important point. So my news is about immigration and about young people again. Uh, you might have seen an article that talked about uh, an update on what happened to uh, the kids who have been taken by ICE or the Office of Refugee Resettlement is that what we now have found out is that those kids are actually in like an, an, another version of a tent city. So we had somebody on the pod not too long ago who talked about the Office of Refugee Resettlement and 
and noted that most of the kids, the majority of the kids, the vast majority of kids like under 18 who get taken in the custody of the immigration officials go to some sort of like foster care, group home, shelter, something like that. So they're still essentially captive, but they're in like a group home setting and they receive schooling and they receive regular visits with uh, legal representatives who are assigned to their cases or who they have. But now they have been put in uh, tents in groups of 20 separated by gender and sleep lined up in bunks. No school. They're given workbooks, but they have no obligation to complete them. Uh, and they have limited, if any, access to legal services. And uh, we know this because some of the shelter workers who previously worked in some of the shelters and now are working at this new tent thing have spoken out anonymously because they know that it doesn't make any sense. And what shocked me even more was that when they have to appear before uh, the immigration court, they're actually doing it over video. And like, you know, on the podcast before, we talked about how so few of the young people have representation because it's not required and they don't have, you don't have a right to representation in immigration court. It's a civil court. And yeah, they're doing it over video. So like, imagine being like a 10 year old having like your, the most important hearing of your life over a video with no lawyer. So it's as egregious as it was before. Uh, the the context has just changed. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, for me, I'm always, as I've talked about before, always thinking about this uh, as a parent. And I just, I can't, I can't even begin to wrap my head around uh, how frightening this is for the for the parents uh, and, and much less the children. I mean, I just, just, I just want people to take a second and sort of imagine being a 12-year-old child, being woken up in the middle of the night, told to pack whatever small amount of things you have with you. You're put on a bus under the cover of night with absolutely no idea where you're going, where you're being taken. You have no communication with your family. And I just I just imagine the fear and the anxiety and and the desperation. Um I almost I almost don't have words. I think, you know, there's so much that um enrages me about this administration, obviously, but but what what they have put these kids through in the way that we know and how we know how trauma works and how we know what these kids are are going to have to live with and and try to overcome you know for the rest of their lives is uh is something that that lights a fire under me in in a way that few things few things have before. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's obscene what this administration has been doing to these kids. Uh, And, you know, so much of the conversation has focused on, you know, and and rightly so it's focused on the kids that have been separated from their parents at the border um, and, you know, put in these detention facilities. And, you know, according to the data, the majority of those kids have been reunited with their parents, although there are still some who have not been, Um, but, you know, unaccompanied minors, those who do not come, with their parents, um, you know, that's actually a much larger population of of kids who are, you know, increasingly becoming part of this large, sprawling, you know, tent center or detention center. Um, and, you know, what's wild about that is that you see, because these are unaccompanied children, there are, you know, there are people out there, many people even in the United States, whether it's, um, you know, family members or, you know, uh, others who want to take these kids in. Uh, and the administration has actually been making it harder for those people to actually, uh, you know, apply for and then ultimately 
um, get those kids released and put into their care uh, because the administration has been taking steps, you know, for example, raiding uh, homes of people who are connected to, who are family members of, or connected to, um, you know, these unaccompanied children in the United States uh, has been, you know, making it very clear that they are going to be uh, trying to identify every single person who is in the home or is uh, connected to somebody who applies to take care of one of those kids. And so what that does is it actually has been reducing the number of uh, families who've been applying to to care for these kids, and as a consequence, leaving these kids uh, in detention centers indefinitely. Oh wow! And so that that is sort of directly contributing to uh, these detention centers having so many kids and growing, and and none of those kids actually uh, being released in any timely fashion. So you know the administration continues to make life harder for these kids, um, and it, you know again these are children without their parents, uh, and to think of the government you know, intentionally taking steps to make their lives harder, uh, to put them in these detention centers indefinitely. I mean, that is, I mean, it's just evil, you know, when you think about it and something that needs to, needs to be urgently addressed. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. When booking with other vacation rental apps sounds like this. This place doesn't look like the pictures. Ah! Is there a door behind all those spiders? It's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation. Ah. <sighs> This is perfect. Relax, you booked a Verbo. Beyonce, Katanji Brown-Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, the Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color-founded companies. For a limited time, the SheCommerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids' books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life. Maybe that's yourself to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. And here's my conversation with Johnny Oshevsky, candidate to be the next county executive in Baltimore County, Maryland. John, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, you're running for a county executive in Baltimore County. People often confuse Baltimore City and Baltimore County. I went to high school and middle school in the county. And you're you're from the county, right? I am. Uh, born and bred uh, over in eastern Baltimore County in the shadow of a steel mill. And you were elected to the Maryland General Assembly at a really young age, 23, I think. What, what made you want to run for county executive? How did you get here? Like, why Why this office? So a lot of it has just been a function of my life experiences. Uh, growing up in Baltimore County, I was the product of the county school system. I remember hearing the blast furnace growing up. And for me, that sound was always gritty. But in many ways, it was always very comforting. And that I knew that 
it meant that people were able to pursue their version of the American dream. They had good wages, they had health benefits, they had a pension. Uh, but I also saw what happened as those jobs slipped away and as the mill closed and as people lost jobs, they lost their health care, they lost their home, they lost hope. Uh, in the midst of all those struggles, you know, I was lucky enough that I had a community and a family that invested in me. So I was able to be the first in my family to go to college here in Baltimore County. It's where I met my wife. Uh, I've continued my education and recently graduated with a PhD um, at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. And so in light of what I witnessed growing up, that's why I resolved to return home um, so I could fight to improve the community that gave me so much and that I grew up in. Uh, I wanted to uh, give back, so I returned to become a special education and social studies teacher in the same school system I went through. Uh, and that's why I ran for the legislature and was lucky enough to be someone early on who represented my hometown. And uh, we didn't shy away from the big fights. So, you know, now my wife and I are raising a family here in Baltimore County, uh, and it's it's a future that we're focused on. And as you know, it's one that's more uncertain now than ever before. But I'm running to secure that future for my daughter and for all the kids of, of our county. And uh, we can do that by doing big things and, and bold and innovative things and doing them right now. So... That's why we're doing this. And how did your experience teaching inform the way you think about change, the way you think about politics and, and the work ahead, the work that has to be done? Yeah, well, I mean, as you know, um, unfortunately, in, in both Baltimore City and Baltimore County, um, we have a lot, of, a lot of ways to go. And for all of the things that Baltimore County has done right, um, we have uh, incredible inequity in our school systems, and that's largely based on our the zip code in which our children live, uh, we still have rampant housing discrimination, and there's a real sense of frustration that our government isn't the open, accessible, and connected government it should be. Uh, so as I think through my experiences as a, as a teacher, um, having spent the, the five years as a social studies and special ed teacher in Baltimore County, and then as a resource for two more, trying to connect parents more meaningful with their kids' education. The thing that I remember most, really, are the kids who came to school hungry and who couldn't focus on their work, or the kids who struggled to learn uh, because of sweltering heat and not having air conditioning, and think about the buzzing of the box fans in the background. But I also remember the incredible dedication that so many of my colleagues exhibited, staying after school, coming in on weekends, usually without compensation, to make sure that our kids had the best possible chance to pass the state-mandated test for graduation. And it struck me that there was an incredible disconnect between the classroom conditions and just the sheer dedication that teachers exhibited towards their students and how absolutely aware we need to be that a child's circumstance um, matters and that we need to do something about filling those opportunity gaps that exist out there. And you recently come out advocating for universal pre-K. What led you to, to that decision? There aren't as many places around the country that we would like to have universal pre-K. It's, it's actually more rare than people think. So why, why are you pushing for it here in Baltimore County? Yeah, I mean, schools are the top priority of my campaign, and universal pre-K is just one piece of giving our kids the best start possible. And both my, in my experiences as a new parent, uh, but also through my time in the classroom, the one thing that we share, no matter where we come from, is a classroom. And as Baltimore County Executive, I want to make sure that these classrooms present the same opportunity for every single student that goes through them. Uh, and that our campaign has a holistic approach, but it starts with pre-K. And I think it's the most important single step we can make towards leveling the playing field. Uh, research uh, on the benefits of pre-K is overwhelming. It's conclusive. Uh, students who have pre-K have higher lifetime earnings, 
they commit fewer crimes, they're more likely to graduate from high school, and uh, the benefits are, are pretty overwhelming. Uh, one study had it as $8.90 for every dollar that we spend, and I think it's, it's much better to invest our resources in our students than it is to incarcerate our residents uh, later on. It's an investment we have to make, and I think we can't afford not to. And how would you help people like just describe what a county executive does? Is it, is it synonymous with the mayor? Like, how do you talk to people about what the role is who just aren't familiar? So uh, Baltimore County has over 830,000 residents, an annual budget of $3.5 billion and thousands of employees. It's larger than states like Wyoming and Vermont. Uh, it's larger, as you mentioned earlier, than Baltimore City and even Washington, D.C. And the role of county executive is essentially the mayor or the, the chief executive. And uh, it's a place where what's exciting at the local level, there's actually a tremendous opportunity to make progress in the areas that people care about the most and that impacts their lives the most, whether that's our school systems or our job creation, trash, roadways and sidewalks um, or permits. Uh, In some ways, it's really the single greatest way to positively or negatively impact the lives of nearly a million people. And so when you think about it that way, it's, it's actually a pretty awesome responsibility. And I know we've covered some of the issues already, but but what would you say are the top three issues to Baltimore County voters that you want to tackle? Like, what would they be? Yeah, so my campaign is focused on three areas, schools, jobs, and making local government accessible, transparent, and connected. Uh, So in schools, I know we touched on universal pre-K, but I also want to enact a universal breakfast and lunch program here in Baltimore County. We have to invest more meaningfully in our school infrastructure. We have schools that still literally have brown drinking water and schools that are sliding into the ground. And I want us to see Baltimore County um, enact community schools where we have more holistic needs of children and their families met, where we do things like provide health care and job training and language classes to not, not only meet the needs of our students, but also their families. Uh, on, on jobs, I want us to have more opportunity and economic justice and believe that anyone who wants a job should be able to have one. And we should make that opportunity available for all our residents. And we can do that by doing things like investing in trades, both traditional and um, those of the future, through things like free community colleges, uh, certification programs, partnering with our private sector, and using innovation to unlock our potential. You know, we're the only major jurisdiction in Maryland without any arts and entertainment jur- districts, for example. Uh, and then finally, reforming local government. Um, technology, I think, is an important way to harness what's possible and serve people better. Uh, my life is in my phone. We have our banking statements, photo albums, music, uh, but in Baltimore County, people can't interact with their government that way. So uh, I also want to do that and things like adding transparency. Uh, for example, um, even though we have a $3.5 billion budget, uh, we had one budget hearing that no one attended. And so as county executive, I want to take the budget to the people we serve so they can meaningfully understand how we're spending money and solicit their feedback about how to participate. Uh, and then also move our county council hearings to the evenings um, that they currently happen in the middle of the day when people can't participate. And then even things like campaign finance and taking you know big special interest out of the mix, creating a public finance option that puts the power back in the hands of, of our people. And I'm a big believer that the volume of your voice shouldn't be determined by the depths of your pockets. There's so many people in this moment who are losing hope, who feel like they've been to a protest, they've called, they emailed, they've testified at the hearing, and like it actually hasn't turned into what they wanted it to. What do you say to those people? I mean, I, I, I guess I think about... Uh, an experience I had with a student, a uh, former student that approached me in a local restaurant a few months ago. Uh, it was pretty unexpected um, because it was a student that sort of skirted by with average grades 
and he wasn't especially involved in activities. Um, you know, I worked pretty closely with this young man during his four years of high school, and I pushed him academically and socially. You know, want him as all of my students to dream big about what they could accomplish, uh, and sort of let him go. Uh, he graduated without much interaction. But he came to thank me over 10 years later for helping to instill in him a confidence that wasn't picked up until later. Um, he's joined a local union, earned a trade, is getting married. And so for that kid, it wasn't about what happened in the moment. It was about planting the seed. And so oftentimes, we just don't see the fruits of those seeds until we plant it much later. Uh, so I would offer the same advice to people who are engaging in campaigns or attending protests or rallies that you know sometimes those seeds take time to come to fruition. And that's what running for office is about. That's what helping campaigns are about. That's what attending these rallies and protests is about, is planting those seeds that we can see the positive outcome of those efforts. And one of the questions we ask everybody is, is there any piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? Absolutely. You know, my, 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 high, school, my high school math teacher, uh, Mrs. Thomas, used to always remind me that life is like a coin. Uh, you get to spend it any way that you like, but you only get to spend it once. And so that's, that's really stuck with me as... Uh, something where I, I know that I want people to remember me for spending that coin on giving others the same opportunities that I've had and for caring about people um, by doing things to enable them to be successful by, you know, promoting relationships, creating opportunity, celebrating diversity, tearing down barriers to success. Um, and, you know, it reminds me that our days are numbered here, no matter how much money we make or what offices we hold. So what really matters is what we're doing for those that come after us, uh, for my daughter, for our other kids, for future generations. Um, what are we doing to leave this world just a little bit better than the way we found it? And where can people go to find more information about the campaign, to follow you, to learn more, to donate, to volunteer? Sure. Uh, we'd love to have people check out our website. It's uh, just gojohnnyo.com. Uh, it's G-O-J-O-H-N-N-Y-O.com. Or uh, check me out on Twitter. I'm at at Johnny O. Jr. Well, thanks so much, Johnny O, and I wish you the best of luck on the campaign. I've donated and uh, knock it out. And we consider you a friend of the pod. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening to Pod Save the People. Make sure you rate us wherever you get your podcasts, and we will see you next week.